Amen. Please be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open up one final time to the epistle of 1 John. We'll be finishing up our series through this book of 1 John, a series meant to show us how John desires the people of God to know that they have eternal life, to have assurance of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening we'll be looking at verses 14 through 21. I'll begin reading in verse 13. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 13, reading to the end. This is the word of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of 1 John and the many things you have shown us as we have gone through it. We ask now, Lord, as we finish our study of this book, that you would impress upon us these truths that we will study, uh, those of the duty and privilege of prayer and the duty of perseverance in Christ. Show us yourself, Lord, and cause us to grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening, we ask in his name, amen. I wonder if any of you, and I'm sure some of you older saints in here have experience with this, have written a letter, have finished writing the letter, and then when you came to the end, realized maybe you had a few more things to say. And so, down there at the bottom of the letter, you wrote P.S. and kept writing. Now, children, you might not have ever written a letter. It's very rare for us to write letters these days. We have text messaging and emails. Uh, And so if you forget to send something in one text message, you just send a second one very quickly. But back in the day when you used to have to write letters by hand and you remembered something that you wanted to say, you would include that at the end with a postscript, a PS, something else that needed to be said. Here in the very end of this 
letter of John, he finishes writing everything that he wants to say. And I don't think it's necessarily a PS that he includes in here, but it's as though John says, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. And then there's a little bit more that he wants you to know. He wants to remind the people of God that this knowledge of eternal life, this confidence that we have in Christ, ought to produce in us uh, action. Because that's what John has been saying the entire time throughout this epistle, hasn't it? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him, have faith in him, and that will produce results, actions, different things in your life. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, true faith will result in a recognition that there is still sin in your life and you need to confess that before God. It will produce in your life uh, an understanding that the Lord has given his commandments to us so that we would follow them and pursue Christ and do what God tells us to do. That in looking to Christ, we ought to grow more and more in our love for God and our love for Christ. And that in turn should produce love for one another in our lives. Yes, there's, there's many things that John wants us to know throughout this epistle, with our focus being on Christ and these different exams that he gives us to test our faith in Christ. But here at the end, he wants us to see that this Christian faith that we have, this confidence which we have in Christ, also produces two other things. He says here that there are blessings and duties of the sons of God. In these verses, John wants to draw our attention to the fact that Christians ought to joyfully and zealously go about the work of prayer and perseverance because of the great hope which we have in Christ. Because of that great hope, we should joyfully and zealously pray and persevere in the things which God has called us to, holiness and faith. We see John open these up to us in two major sections. And you can see the outline in your bulletin that there's prayer of the saints, verses 14 through 17, and then perseverance of the saints, John explores in verses 18 through 21. Christians ought to go about the work of prayer and perseverance because they trust in Christ, because all of their hope is in Christ, because they know that he and he alone is the great savior, and because they know that he does forgive his people of their sins. John tells us in these verses, Christians ought to be a praying people. We see that in verses 14 through 17. Let's go to the word of God and see how John opens this up to us this evening under this topic of prayer. Christians ought to go about the work of prayer. John writes in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 15, and we know that he 
hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John in these verses tells us we should be praying. And he tells us three things about prayer. Three things. First, he tells us that we should pray with confidence. He tells us this at the beginning of verse 14. He says, this is the confidence that we have towards him. Christians have confidence or boldness before God. Because of our faith in Christ, we may go before the throne of God full of confidence and boldness in prayer. Children, when you are hungry, do you stand back kind of behind your parents and cough nervously and say, I'm hungry? Or do you go up to your parents boldly and say, I'm hungry? Hey, mom, when's dinner? When are we going to eat? I'm starving. You go to your parents boldly when you're hungry, don't you? Remember, Jesus himself used this same kind of illustration when he talked about us going to the Father in prayer to ask for good gifts, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to the people around him, who among you, when his child asks him for bread, gives them a rock? Or when your child asks you for a fish, you give them a snake? Nobody does that, do they? Children, if you ask your mother for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, is she going to give you a rock and say, here is your peanut butter sandwich? No. Parents give their children the food that they need. God gives his children the things that they need. And so we know that we can go to God boldly with all of our prayers, our requests, our supplications. We don't need to stand back nervously and think, what if God doesn't want to listen to me right now? We have boldness. We have boldness before him. The ESV translate boldness towards him, but, but it's in his presence. We can go to his throne with all of our prayers and requests because he loves to hear our prayers and requests. Jesus told another parable, didn't he? About a woman who went and pestered an unjust king. She came to him day after day and he said, I don't want to listen to you go away. But she kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And finally she wore him out. And he said, okay, I'll listen to you. And so she came and brought her petitions. Jesus told this to emphasize the fact that God is not an unjust king. God doesn't say, go away. I don't want to listen to you. He doesn't say, I don't have time for your prayers. I'm busy doing other things. Don't you know that I uphold the entire universe? Why would I listen to you? God doesn't say that. We can go boldly to the throne of grace because God welcomes us into his throne room. We don't annoy him or take up time that he would use for other things. He's our father. So he summons us before him. He says, come to me. And bring all of your prayers and requests. And so we ought to have confidence in prayer. 
the first thing that John emphasizes here. He also emphasizes that we ought to pray in God's will. We should ask according to his will. He says this in in the second part of verse 14 and into verse 15. He says, this is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. See, John wants to remind us here that we are to come to God boldly with all of our prayers and supplications. We're, we're to approach his throne full of confidence. But we're also supposed to pray according to his will. And this is what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? That we are supposed to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are supposed to pray for those things which uh, are agreeable to what he has revealed to us in scripture. God never ever in the entirety of the Bible promises to answer any of our prayers for sinful things, does he? See, praying according to God's will means praying for those things which God would approve of. If you were to go rob a bank and you were to pray beforehand, Lord, please make this bank robbery successful and let me get away without getting arrested. That is not a prayer agreeable to God's will, is it? No, it's the exact opposite because God in his revealed will for us has told us not to steal. Thou shalt not steal one of the Ten Commandments. But what John says is that we must ask according to God's will. If we ask according to his will, he hears us. And this, I think, is a great and marvelous truth for us that we can pray things that will absolutely get a yes answer from God. Do you want God to respond yes to a prayer? Then pray for something that is according to his will. Pray for those things which he's promised in his word. Pray that the Lord would save all of his people. He will answer yes to that prayer because he will save all of his people. Pray that he would glorify his name in all the earth. He will answer yes to that prayer because he will glorify his name in all the earth. Pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would return in glory. The Lord will answer yes to that prayer. Now that one is a yes and wait a little bit longer. But the fact of the matter is there are certain things which we can pray for, which the Lord will absolutely and certainly answer yes to those things which are agreeable to his will. But we also ought to pray for other things that are agreeable to the revealed will, what God has told us in scripture, the way we ought to live, the things we ought to pursue, the will of God for our life. And we should pray according to his will because God answers according to his will. The first half of verse 15, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. And God hears all of our prayers to him. Certainly, and John wants to emphasize that, that when we pray to God, he does hear us. But as it follows within the context and everything, he's, he's saying that we know we have the request we've asked of him. We know he hears us and that he answers us when we are asking for things according to his will. God answers prayers according to his will. And this ought to give us even more confidence, shouldn't it? Shouldn't this cause us to think, well, 
if God is going to answer yes to these particular prayers that, that I'm praying that are according to his will absolutely, I should be praying for them. These should shape our prayers and, and influence our prayers. We ought to be crying out constantly, come Lord Jesus, please return. We ought to pray, Lord, please save. Save those people in my neighborhood. Save those people in our city. Save people throughout our nation and throughout the world. Save all of your elect, Lord. We should pray that confidently. So often we pray these prayers, Lord, save the unbelievers. And I think perhaps in the back of our minds, we think, well, yeah, I believe God will save people, but I don't know, is he going to do it this time? The Lord will save all of his people. And we ought to pray that he will save all of his chosen people. And we ought to be confident that we will answer that prayer. And we ought to marvel at the fact that the Lord uses our prayers for those things to accomplish his will. This is one of these great mysteries and marvels that the Lord does, in fact, use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. And that ought to give us great confidence when we pray according to his will. So John wants us to know that we should pray with confidence and that we should pray according to God's will. And he wants us to know that we should pray for ourselves and others, especially for the salvation of others. If we look at the second half of verse 15 through 17, we read, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I said that John here wants us to know that we should pray for ourselves and others. And he doesn't uh, explicitly say that we should pray for ourselves. But in these phrases, ask anything or whatever we ask or the request that we ask, I think all imply that prayers for ourselves are entirely acceptable. And furthermore, the witness of Scripture really uh, teaches us that it is acceptable to pray for ourselves. In the Lord's Prayer, Christ teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so we are to pray for ourselves. We are to ask things for ourselves which are agreeable to God's will. We should be asking the Lord to give us more faith. We should be asking the Lord to grant us repentance so that we can turn away from sin. We should be asking the Lord to produce the fruits of the Spirit in us and to grow us in righteousness and holiness, to direct us in his ways, according to his will. We ought to pray boldly for ourselves, but here John reminds us or brings to our attention specifically that we should be praying for the salvation of others, the perseverance in salvation for our brethren. A particular prayer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. We should be praying for other believers to repent of their sins and seek 
to follow Christ more closely. And in the greater context, I think, of this book of 1 John, I think he's also referencing that we should pray for our brothers and sisters who have been led astray by false teaching and have begun to depart from the true faith uh, to these things which they ought not to be believing in. Really, uh, this all kind of hinges on what brother means here. And we know that kind of throughout the book, John has referred to uh, members of the church specifically as brothers. But here I think he's including both members of the church uh, who are continuing in the faith, but also those who have recently departed. They are committing sin not leading to death yet. But, but, they're on their way, it seems. Now, this, this phrase, sin leading to death, or sin not leading to death, is difficult. This is one of those sticky points that you often come to when you're studying the word of God. What does John mean by this? Because he says that we are not necessarily to pray for the sin that leads to death. We need to understand what he's talking about here. I think... The best way to understand this, given the context of 1 John and, and the rest of Scripture, is that these people who are committing the sin leading to death are those who are in a willful and stubborn apostasy that is actively working against the gospel. Willful and stubborn apostasy working against the gospel. This is a full rejection of everything that God says about Christ, about the gospel. <clears throat> this is people who, who have been in the church. They've heard all the truth about Christ. They've been uh, exhorted and directed to place your faith in Christ. Look to him for salvation. They know deep down that it's true, but they're saying, no, I don't want to. And on top of that, they're trying to drag others along with them. They're committing a sin which ultimately leads to their destruction, uh, the second death. They have rejected Christ, working against him, doing everything that they can to thwart the purposes of God if they could. That's what John means here. He says, we're to pray for our brothers who are committing sin, not doing that and to those who are committing that sin leading to death he says I do not say that one should pray for that and this might shock us that John's saying I'm not saying you need to pray for that we think well, shouldn't we be praying for everyone shouldn't, shouldn't we be imploring God to, to save everyone Notice John doesn't say don't pray for these people. He simply says, I'm not saying that you have to. He says, there are these people who are actively working against Christ. And God does not require us to seek their salvation. We can. And indeed, I think perhaps we should. But when someone is so far gone, so far in apostasy, hating the Lord so much that everything that's in them uh, is twisted against God. 
John says, the Lord does not promise to save them. The Lord does not give us a guarantee that if we pray for them, they will repent. We can pray for them, but we must accept God's will concerning whether they do repent by God's grace or not. There are some sins not leading to death, some sins which, which are not this, this sin to death. All wrongdoing is sin, John says. It's, it's all sinful. It's all evil in the sight of God. It all must be repented of, but some sin is not the same as this final apostasy. This sin which leads to death is not something which just happens one day. So, dear believers, be confident and assured you're not going to wake up tomorrow all of a sudden committing the sin which leads to death. But this is a, a, a path. The, the death is the end of a long path. And there are those who, though they start in the church and, and they're walking in the church, eventually they walk away. We have to be praying for them as soon as they walk away, not waiting for them to get to the point where they are so far in apostasy that we can't know whether or not God would save them or not. Now, let me take a second here and say that there is no sin so large that God cannot forgive it. Even this sin of apostasy, of, of rejecting everything that you've known and turning away from God and working against him can be forgiven. That's not John's point here. It can be forgiven. What John's point is, is that we may be confident in our prayers for those who are not sinning unto death, whereas those who are sinning to death, we pray for them and we leave the results to God. That is prayer that we ought to be making for others. That they forsake sin and they follow after Christ. But that's not the only thing that John talks about in our text this evening. I think he takes that idea and moves on to the idea of perseverance because he knows that that will very quickly be on the mind of the Christian. When they look at this, they say, oh, apostasy, well, I don't want to do that no, I want to keep following Jesus. And John says, good. Because those who are in Christ will continue to follow after him. They will continue in perseverance. And he writes about these things in verses 18 through 21 with three we knows. You remember whenever anything is repeated, it's important. John tells us that we know three things. And these all have to do with the perseverance of the saints. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
John tells us that we should persevere in holiness because we know these things. And he tells us we should persevere in faith because we know these things. In verse 18 and 19, he tells us that we should persevere in holiness because of what we know. First, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, you remember, as we have seen throughout the book of 1 John, when John says that we don't keep on sinning, he doesn't mean that those who are truly converted are all of a sudden perfect in this world and sinless. But what he means is that those who have been born of God have a changed life, a different disposition. We no longer have affections for those things which we previously had affections for. We no longer have a desire for all of these things, uh, the dross, uh, the dirt, which we normally or used to play in back when we were outside of Christ. Uh, We no longer are children playing in the mud making mud pies. No, we have been changed. We have been cleansed by Christ and brought into the household of God. So it's not a complete sinlessness, but it's evidence that the power of sin no longer holds you, binds you. People who have been born of God have a changed life, a different disposition. And he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Those who have been born of God don't keep sinning because Christ preserves them. He protects them. He keeps them. The evil one does not touch him because God protects them. When I was young, and I suppose still now, though I haven't read it, in a long time. I used to love to read stories of King Arthur and his knights. My favorite knight was Sir Galahad, the one who lived righteously, who was pure, who loved the Lord. And one of my favorite stories about him is on one of his adventures. He comes to uh, an abbey and the monks there say, there's been this dreadful noise out in the graveyard. Can you go investigate it? We know that you're uh, an upright and and chivalrous knight, can you take care of this for us? And so he goes out there and he encounters a fiend, an evil spirit, a foul being who comes at him and then stops and shrinks back and says, oh, Galahad, I would tear you into pieces, but God has placed too many angels around you. This was one of my favorite stories because I always thought, how amazing would that be? That God would set his angels all around me and protect me from all evil. And he does. And even better than that, Christ, the king, protects his people from evil. Christ, the king, preserves us from the evil one. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Christ, the king, says... You cannot touch this one. He's mine. This is my child, a member of my church. You cannot touch him. Christ preserves us. Not so the world, though. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And while we know that we belong to Christ and he protects us, We also know that the world 
still lies in the sway of this evil one. They're still bound in sin and darkness. They are still children of their father, the devil. I think John here wants us to, first of all, realize this great privilege and position which we have in Christ. Not something which we've earned, something graciously given to us. And he also wants us to see the great need which the world has for Christ. We are to persevere, but we are also to pity. The world lies in the power of the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Forsake it, but pity them. Take the gospel to them. For many of Christ's people might still be there in the sway of the world. We are to persevere in holiness through Christ and in him. We're to persevere in faith. And this is where John ends his epistle in verses 20 and 21. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We know the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. Christ, the God-man, appeared in this world, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins. He came and he has given us understanding by the Holy Spirit. He has enlightened our minds and renewed our wills so that we're persuaded and enabled to embrace him as he's offered in the gospel. Christ has given us understanding and why? Was it just so that we would have knowledge just so that we could learn facts, just so we could say, well, I have lots of Bible verses memorized. I know the shorter catechism. Christ didn't come for that. All those are all good things. We should memorize scripture. We should learn the shorter catechism, children. But Christ came and gave us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Christ came so that we might have communion with God through him fellowship with the living and true God the purpose of understanding is to know him who is true the true God the eternal life Jesus Christ the purpose of Christ's coming not so that we could add a little Jesus to our lives but that we would have union and communion with the triune God Forgiveness of sins, grafting in to the true vine, life, eternal life, Christ himself. That is the reason Christ came and gave us understanding so that we might be his people. He might be our God. We might live with him now and forever. That is the purpose. John directs our gaze right back to Christ, even as he opened up this epistle, reminding us of him who was from the beginning, Christ. He now closes the epistle with he who is from the beginning, the true God, Christ, the Lord, the one in whom 
we have communion with the living God, fellowship with the living God, eternal life. But then, and this might seem a little strange, he closes with this clause, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now maybe if you were writing this, and you had been speaking uh, to the church, and had written over and over again, little children love one another, you might have thought, little children love one another to be a more appropriate closing to this epistle. But it's not. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. A strange way for a letter to end, maybe. But one which I think emphasizes for us what he just said in the previous verse. Christ is the true God and eternal life. Any other so-called God is not. Calling anything else a God, placing anything else in priority in your life is idolatry. John closes with this because the church in that day and age was oppressed from all sides. There were many temples, many gods, many people saying, oh, you can have a little bit of Jesus, just have all of these other gods too. And John says, don't do it. Keep yourselves from idols. And the same is true for us today. You remember that Calvin wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. We do love to make idols, don't we? Children, when you think idol, you might remember the golden calf. It's maybe the most famous idol. And you might think, well, I've never made a golden calf. I don't carve statues and put them up in my room and bow down and pray to them. We don't have to do that to make an idol, do we? No, if we place anything above Christ, the living and true God, if anything else takes priority over him, it can become an idol. Even good things, friendships, sports, music, any of these things could become idols and we're to keep ourselves from it. Christ is to be preeminent in our life. We're to keep our gaze focused on him. We may have these other things as good and gracious gifts of God, but they must never take the place of the Lord Jesus in our life. Be sure, dear saints, that nothing distracts you from Jesus. That is John's point. And be sure that nothing distracts you from the Jesus of the Bible. The Gnostics that John was combating during this time said, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but it was a false Jesus a Jesus of their own imagination. Many people today said, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but it's a false Jesus, a Jesus that they invented, a Jesus who just wants everybody to get along and be friendly, sit in a circle around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. John says, keep yourself from idols. Let Christ the true Christ, the living Christ, the Christ revealed in scripture, let him be the one who has all of your attention. He is the one that you must worship. Dear people, keep yourselves 
from idols. Let your focus be continually on the true Christ, the living Christ. Learn of him as he is presented in the word of God, this inspired gift of God given to us for our instruction. Learn of Christ. Learn more of Christ. Spend time with him in prayer. Spend time with him in meditation on the word. Reject idols, false conceptions of Christ and anything else that might distract you from him. Persevere in faith. Faith in the living and true Christ, the true God, who alone gives salvation to his people. And pray. Pray that your brothers and sisters would persevere in this faith. Pray that those who have begun to walk away from the faith, would be brought back. Pray that the lost would be converted to Christ, that the spirit would work in their hearts by the word, that they would see him for who he is, that they would know what he has done and in faith they would rest upon him alone for salvation. Pray these things and pray with confidence because you have bold access to the throne of God. He welcomes you and your prayers. John has reminded us of these things this evening so that as we close our study of this book, we would know that we have eternal life and in knowing we would delight to go to the Lord in prayer and we would delight to follow after Christ always as we have been called to do. Let's close in prayer. Our great and glorious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of First John, for these examinations which we have seen, uh, directing our attention to how we are uh, living out our profession of faith, but most of all, directing our gaze back to Christ. Lord, give us faith, a stronger faith. Give us obedience. Give us love. Give us confidence, Lord, to boldly approach you with all of our prayers and supplications. Help us, Lord, to follow after the Lord Jesus always so that one day when we appear before him, we will hear those blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. We long to hear these words, O Lord. Make it so, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.